Well, good morning and greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. I'm glad to be here. I was looking forward to being here. I love you. You always hold a special place in my heart here at Bethany. I'm grateful for that. But I'm nervous this morning. But it's not because of you. Because I know that you love me as well. It's because of the weight I feel from the Word of God this morning. The message I have to share with you this morning is about personal responsibility in some senses. Let me change that. It's not about personal responsibility, but it is a personal responsibility. It's about something different, but it is a personal responsibility that each one of us have. And it is individual in that sense, but it is not individualistic. And I hope you know the difference between those two. I was gripped recently by a little line in the Sermon on the Mount that's in Matthew chapter 7. That's not going to be my text, but Matthew 7, 14. The verse is concluded with this statement, Few there be that find it. That verse says, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Few there be that find it. Who are those few? Am I the few or am I the many? You step back from that just a little bit, step back in the verse just a little bit, it says, which leadeth unto life. So we're talking about a way that leads to life and few will find it. Well, that got my mind moving, life, salvation, if it leads to life, then that's different than death, and salvation is about finding life from death, so this is about salvation, few there be that find it. For a text, you can turn to Matthew chapter 13. The title of the message this morning is The Parable of Purpose. Now, when I was here the last time, I, I, the title of the message was The Parable of Potential. But this is The Parable of Purpose. Um, so I'll make that distinction. It's actually two parables in three verses. And it begins in verse 44, where Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure hid in a field, in which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant who seeketh, merchant man seeking God, goodly pearls, who when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and bought it. Now I want to put just a, a very simple illustration on the board here for you. 
about this parable. So let's consider that that is the pearl or the treasure, okay? So it was one treasure, it was one pearl, it was one thing. There was a man involved in both parables, there was a man involved. And he was looking for that pearl or that treasure. And somehow he got knowledge of that pearl or that treasure. And when, he, when that happened, all the stuff that he had, the place where he lived, he left that and went to get his hands on that pearl or that treasure. So what I want you to catch is the fact that it affects his life. What he found affected his life. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. When you find this, it's going to change your life. Whatever holds your place, whatever holds this place in your life, is your God. I'd like to think a little bit this morning about our created purpose. Why did God create us? How were we unique in creation? And I think we all know the creation story, most of us very well, that we were created in God's image. But why is that important? Why was that important to God? Why was it important to God to make something in His image? What was His desire? Because the whole creation brings Him glory. But what was unique about us being in His image? It was that we have the capacity to know Him. That was unique. God created us to know Him. A.W. Tozer says it this way, You and I are in little, and then in quotation marks, our sins accepted, or not including our sins. You and I are in little what God is in large. Being made in His image, we have within us the capacity to know Him. He goes on to say that religion, so far as it is genuine, is in essence the response of created personalities to the creating personality God. God is a person, and in the deep of His mighty nature, He thinks, wills, enjoys, feels, loves, desires, and suffers as any other person may. In making Himself known to us, He stays by the familiar pattern of personality. He communicates with us through the avenues of our minds, our wills, and our emotions the continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed man is the throbbing heart of New Testament religion. Is that what you know? Is that what Christianity is to you? Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is life eternal. Now, if Jesus is telling us that something is life eternal... We ought to be listening. 
Because what we want to know is salvation, right? We want to know the way of salvation. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That word know there is a, a deep, intimate knowledge. It's a deep, close relationship. It's the Greek version of the word that's used in Hebrew to describe the relationship between Adam and Eve. And Adam knew his wife Eve. The intimate aspect of their relationship as a man and a wife. And it's used in that sense in the New Testament. So to know God, is, is some, there's something about the essence of our life that knowing God is critical to that. It's the eternal aspect of our life. God wants to be known by us. Think about that. See, that's kind of the other way around. God, we want to know God, but God wants to be known by us. And that's right in keeping with the first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And to set our measure at anything less is to miss it all. To set our measure at anything less is to set our measure at something that will not give proper order to our lives and proper direction. And I believe that people... And churches have set many things in this place that was not God, and the end result was apostasy. And so our discussion in the youth guys class this morning was, what can keep us from going down that road of apostasy? What's going to keep us from ending up like Israel? Or maybe we could put ourselves in the place of the generations ahead that Justin read about this morning, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord and then their children did even worse. What's going to keep us from that? Well, how can we know God? How do we know God? Well, initially God spoke beings into, into existence that could know Him. And so His Word actually presented the possibility of him being known. or his, his word brought forth the possibility of him being known, being revealed. And so God created something that could respond to him and know him. And we also, being made in his image, have a desire to know and to be known. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Satan tempted Eve to know outside of God. And that's the essence of evil, is the pursuit of knowledge outside of the person of, of God, the person of Christ. It's the exploitation of that desire. And when Adam and Eve took that road, they opened a door that they couldn't shut. Or you could say, they shut a door that they couldn't open. When they became self-aware, that self-awareness blocked their capacity to know God. 
for who he truly was. Because self became the primary significant life in their value system. So was there no hope? John 1, 12 to 14 says that the Word was made flesh. Colossians 1, 13 to 15 says that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 say He was the express image of God's person. The living Word has come to reveal God to us. That they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. So the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The life and teachings of Jesus reveal God to us. Knowing Jesus is eternal life. Where is Jesus now? He's with the Father. Later on in his prayer there in John 17, in verse 20, Jesus said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So Jesus said there's going to be people, or Jesus is implying that there's going to be people that come after me, that your words, the apostles' words, are going to give testimony of me, and I'm going to, they're going to believe in me through that testimony, through that word. So Jesus is with the Father. And how we learn to know about Jesus is through the written Word of God, the testimony of the apostles. But Jesus is clear. He doesn't say that they'll believe on your Word. He says they'll believe on me through their Word. Hebrews 12, very familiar passage. Verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And how are we going to do that? How are we going to run this race? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see that? You see that path? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and we're looking to him. Looking unto Jesus. I think the NASB says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. A focus on the person. To seek out the person of Christ, to know His character, His nature, and to follow Him. To walk with Him. I hope you're with me at this point. Because I've tried to take you on a path that takes you to the, to the reality that the essence of human life and salvation is bound up in knowing God. And that happens through knowing Jesus. And that is something that is completely personal. 
Nobody else can do that for you. Nobody can take you to that point. It's something that you have to take responsibility for. I think it was C.S. Lewis said that you've been given responsibility for, or you've been given, you've been given the ability to change one life, and that's yours. So I'd like to, to, to shift a little bit now, and I'd th like to think about the life of Jesus. I'd like to think about three aspects of his life. The person, who he was, the principle, what he lived by, and the practice, the things that he said and did. In the Old Testament, there were a lot of prophecies, but those prophecies didn't focus on the coming of a new law. They focused on the coming of a person. The seed of Abraham would come. The Messiah would come. And it proclaimed the coming of Jesus. And the first words that we have recorded that he spoke show that his life was guided not by his belief, but rather by his person. Luke chapter 2, verse 49 Mary and Joseph come back to Jerusalem. They find Jesus in the temple talking with the um, leaders. And he says, and he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? What was he saying in that? He was saying something more than, I'm just doing this. He was saying that I am someone. I am the son of my father. And because I am the son of my father, I am here. I am doing this because of who I am. In that hymn, it's one of my favorites, Break Thou the Bread of Life. It says in the first line, Beyond the sacred page I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. Now there's ways we could take that that are wrong. But the sense that I want us, to, want us to get out of that this morning is the fact that this is a testimony of the living word. And it is the living word that we seek. I seek to know his heart, his vision for humanity, to know him as a close friend. The principles that Jesus lived and taught were an expression of his person. Mark 1.22 says, And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. There was a message that came forth from Jesus, but it was more than just the message of his words. It was a message that was empowered by the authority of his person. So the principles that Jesus taught were... They were principles that were true. They were principles that were good and important for human life. But they were given their power, their body, by his authority and of his person. I'd like for you to think about that just a bit. The value that we give to what someone says is based on the value that we give to their person. In other words, the, the value of, of what we see they are 
is how much we respect what they say and what they do. So there's a multitude of ways you can think about that. But if Jesus is that pearl of great price, and if he is that treasure, then how much weight does that give to what he has to say? How about practice? Jesus says something interesting about his practice. And this is in response to Philip saying to him, show us the Father and it suffices us. Jesus says in verse 11 of John 14, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. So he's not saying there, believe in my works, but he's saying that my works validate the person of who I am. Believe in me because of what you see being validated by the things that I'm doing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Jesus says, is saying, the things that I do are just an outflow of who I am. This is my person, and it's just an outflow of who I am, and, and you should believe on me because you see this outflow as evidence of that. And that's the call. That's Jesus' call throughout the Gospels. If you go and look through the Gospels, what does Jesus say that we should believe in? Believe on me. Believe on him whom he hath sent. That's the very core of it. And I want to I think just about that. Jesus had the perfect opportunity when the Jews came to him in John 6 and said, um, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Now, that was a perfect opportunity for him to preach a sermon on the mount, right? But Jesus got right to the core of it. He said, this is the core. If this doesn't happen, the sermon on the mount isn't going to happen. How did he conclude the sermon on the mount? But seek ye first. No, sorry, that's chapter 6. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. All right, I'd like, to, I'd like to shift again a little bit. As Christians, as people who call ourselves Christians, I think we have three areas of potential focus when we look at the Scriptures. The person, the principle, and the practice. And as conservative Christians, we have, we have talked a lot about practice. And it is important, it's vitally important that we live out the scriptures. So I'm not minimizing that, I'm just bringing it up. And as our culture moves away from Judeo-Christian values, practice will be the area of visible separation. So as the culture around us is rapidly moving away from Judeo-Christian values, and what this book talks about, and so what's going to happen is that they're going to change their practice because they're moving away in their belief system. And so if, if we are practicing what this book teaches, there's going to become a greater and greater separation between us. And so there's going to be a very visible and marked, there's going to be a, a, a marked growth in the difference between what true followers of Jesus look like and what 
um, the world around us looks like. And you know, I've heard many times that we don't just need the practice, okay? We, don't, we need more than just to hear the practice taught. We need to hear the principle that's behind the practice. So we need to understand the principles behind why we do what we do. And I believe that's true. But I think we need to go further yet than that. And we need to go to the person of Jesus Christ. Because the person of Christ is at the foundation of both his principle and his practice. And it is key to understanding his principle and practice. There are a lot of churches out there that say that they are following this book. And that's one of the things through my years of seeking and trying to determine where God wanted me to go with life. That was one of the things that really stood out to me. Everybody says that this is the Word of God. Well, how come we're coming out so far so many different areas? I got a call that illustrates this some time ago. And this call is from a man who wasn't a believer. And he had read through the Bible. And as he read through the Bible, he apparently was thinking about the Christians that he knew. And he described those people, those Christians, as, and, and he was specifically picked out alternative lifestyles. And he described those people as exclusive and condemning. And he said, that's not at all what I see in Jesus when I read through the Gospels. So what makes the difference? Well, not just his call, but from many calls that I've received that are similar to that, it's, it's in large part the fundamentalist Protestant perspective about alternative lifestyles that come out, comes out very harshly and very strongly against those people. And I would say to you this morning that I believe that that man is describing the end result of one of the major aspects of Luther's teaching, Martin Luther's teaching. And I'll tell you, I can tell you more about, I'd really, I'd really like to talk more about that than what I have time to, but what I want to pull out of that is the fact that Luther held the book of Romans above the Gospels, and his focus was on, the belief, on belief in the work of Christ instead of belief on the person of Christ. And because he focused on belief in the person of Christ, it was just a tiny little step away from what salvation and the gospel were, but had tremendous and serious results over the years. And it, actually, the Protestant movement is really going in two directions. The fundamentalist side has, has really gotten, like what I was describing to you, the liberal side has basically been swallowed up in um, the social movement. Um, and neither one has stayed true to what we understand the person of Christ to be in the Gospels. 
But you see, the problem is, and I want to bring us back to this idea of belief in the work of Christ. See, the problem is that it views the work of Christ as sufficient to complete salvation. So what that means is that what Christ has done is, is all that needs to be done. And there's some senses in which that is true, but it misses something very vital from the teachings of Christ. And that is... That Jesus' message about salvation was about following him in life. It was about following his person. About following him. And ideas have consequences. And if principle and practice become our focus, we'll be diverted from the narrow way. And it's really easy to fall into this trap. And this can be something for you to think about, but I've described it before as Protestant theology with works. Now I'm talking more specifically about Anabaptist people. And I believe this is something that Anabaptist churches in the U.S. are really struggling with today. And this is not something that is just, you know, if we get administration figured out right, we're going to fix it. It doesn't work that way. It's across the spectrum of Anabaptism in our country. It's on both the liberal side of that administration and it's on the conservative side. And in fact, I think a focus on that has been part of the issue. Because we've left the core of our Anabaptist roots. In focusing on administration, we have left the core of our Anabaptist roots. I want to point out two critical things about focus on Christ, and I'm going to use uh, Hans Dink, an early Anabaptist leader, um, some things from his life as kind of a, a background or a backdrop of that. For Dink, the living inner word of God was more important than the letters of Scripture. Now, that might sound almost heretical to us in some senses. But I hope you can follow what I've been leading you to, is that this is a testimony in which we are pursuing and seeking a living relationship with a living person, Jesus Christ, the living Word of God. Dink held that Christ is the embodiment of the perfect person, never separated from God because He has always done God's will. Thus does Christ serve as model. Luther taught the doctrine of justification by faith, whereas Dink's whole emphasis was put instead on discipleship to Jesus. His motto was, no one may truly know Christ except one follows him in life. End of quote. I'm going to read that again. No one may truly know Christ except one follows him in life. And you know, we talk about following Christ, but what do we mean? Are we referring to putting principles into practice? Are we referring to a living relationship that is empowering who we are? What, what lies beneath Dink's motto is a connection with Christ, being with Him. 
Mark 3, 14, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. Those 12 that he ordained were his disciples and they were to be with him. They were to spend time with him. They were to observe him. They were to relate to him. They were to be his disciples and a disciple is with his master. The second thing that's in that statement, I believe, is to be like him. No one may truly know Christ except one follows him in life. If we believe like Hans Dink did, that Christ was the embodiment of the perfect person, then we will want to be like him. If we really believe that, we will want to be like him. It will be our desire. And Jesus said his call to follow him begins with a call to give up our person, to give up our self, the self that blocked Adam and Eve's knowledge of God after their sin. Jesus says, you must give up who you are. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what, what is a man advantage if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? What's the value of gaining everything down there if for eternity I lose what's up there? Jesus says that losing our person for his sake will really be saving our life. How's that possible? 2 Corinthians 4.10 always bearing, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. And that's part of what we were talking about in youth Sunday school class. We talked about Romans 12 where it says giving our bodies a living sacrifice to God. It has to do with giving our bodies in a sacrifice so that through our bodies, Christ can live. We give up our person to gain his person. And this is much deeper than acting out principles that we are taught and putting them into practice. It means taking on his nature. It means embracing his worldview, sharing his motivation. Loving the things that he loved and hating the things that he hates. Out of our new person will come the principles and the practice. And there is only one way for that to happen. And that is to sell what we have and go and buy the field and find the treasure and buy the pearl. It's the only way. As we focus on knowing his person, we experience the power of his life in us, and then we live like him in the world. And I mentioned earlier that we have left the core of our Anabaptist roots. And the core of Anabaptism was discipleship of Jesus Christ. And the Anabaptist movement has lasted for 500 years.
There are still Anabaptist people who are faithful to the Lord today. And I tell you what, brothers and sisters, if we want to learn what's important to carry on for future generations, we better figure out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then go live it. Where did Jesus go during his life? <clears throat> he went all the way to the cross. We sang about Calvary this morning and freedom at Calvary. But his journey to the cross is a life of humiliation and sacrifice. And one of the reasons why we've diverted to focusing on other things besides that, besides discipleship of him, is because we don't want to live that way. We don't want to live lives of humiliation and sacrifice. Not in our human nature. But someone asked me recently, did Christ want to go to the cross? And his flesh didn't want to go to the cross, but his spirit wanted to go to the cross. Because it was the Father's will. Romans 8 it says but ye are not in the flesh but in the spirit if so be the spirit of Christ dwell in you the narrow way few there be that find it one of the things that I wondered about as I thought about Jesus sitting there teaching those people on the sermon on the mount was well there he was he was the way the truth and the life right there was eternal life. Right there was salvation. Why would few find it? Well, few in that crowd listening to that sermon would devote their lives to knowing and following the person of Jesus. And I believe that few today will accept the hard work and sacrifice of a life as his disciple. Jesus said, Count the cost because there is a cost to being his disciple. But it's worth the end. It is far easier to be given a list of principles and practices than to establish and maintain a vital living relationship. It's easier to divert to that. A relationship is something personal that requires you and me to take responsibility. It does not remove the principles and the practices. It establishes them within you. If you commit yourself to a life of discipleship of Jesus. The mystery of the gospel in Colossians 1.27 is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery that came to be revealed to us. The person of Jesus is the second Adam, the representation of what humanity was meant to be, the image of the invisible God. And our goal as Christians is to know his person more and more fully and exemplify that true humanity in the world today. To know him is the pearl of great price. And there is no other way than to be his disciple. May the Lord bless us 
as we commit our lives to Him and to the way of walking with Jesus. Shall we have a song?